so we are continuing our class on the attributes of God. Uh, you'll remember two weeks ago we did the prolegomena, the introduction, and we talked about two questions, what is God and who is God? And we said who is God describes what he does, how he behaves, what he believes, what he thinks. What is God gets to his nature. And when we ask what is God, we don't really have an answer because we don't have a genus we can put him in. We don't have a category we can place him into. And then last week we talked about the aseity of God, the self-existence of God, that God is from himself. He has life in himself. All of that he is comes from himself. He is dependent upon nobody and nothing. He is independent of his creation and completely set apart from his creation. Today we're talking about the immutability of God. Immutability refers to God's unchangeableness. Immutability says that God never changes. He is eternally the same as he has always been. God does not change in his essence. God does not change in his nature. His attributes never change. They are always the same. They have eternally been the same. If God could change one of his attributes, he would cease to be God. God does not change in his character, his moral character. The same good God that created the universe six to 10,000 years ago is the same good God that he is today and is the same good God he will be in a billion years. He is eternally what he is. His holiness, his justice, none of his character will change at all. Immutability also refers to his changelessness in his purpose, that is, in his will. When you and I make plans, we have to change our plans. When God makes a plan, his plan never changes. He never gets a second opinion. He never has to update his purpose or his plan. It is always the same. And finally, immutability refers to his promises. When God makes a promise, that promise is good eternally. It does not change in any way, shape, or form. Biblical doctrine gave this definition. God's mutability is his perfect unchangeability in his essence, character, purpose, and promises. And we're going to look at this from a theological point of view first, and we're going to kind of get our minds wrapped around the idea, and then we're going to go into Scripture, and we're going to find it in Scripture. Immutability says that God does not change. He is eternally who he is. He is the same God he has always been from eternity past and eternity future. He does not change. Creatures change, but he does not change. Time moves forward, God stays exactly the same. Time does not change God, time changes you. Time changes everything that's in creation. J.R. Tolkien wrote a poem about time. And here's what his poem said. Speaking of time, this thing all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays kings, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. Time changes everything. Everything that goes into creation eventually will change with the passing of time. And in fact, the Roman poet Ovid in Metamorphosis said, Time is a devourer of things. As soon as a creature enters into creation, he enters into time, that 
creature begins to change. The clock on the wall right now says it's 9.06. The second hand is going to move forward one, and you're going to change. You're going to get older. And with every passing second, you change some more. Change is a reality. You are not the person you used to be. The day you were born, you were maybe yay big. You had no strength. You had no knowledge. You had no wisdom. There was nothing that you could do for yourself. But as time passed, you grew older. As time passed, you grew stronger. You gained more knowledge. You learned how to apply that knowledge. You call that wisdom. You learned how to use your body and your different, the parts of your body to do things. And so with that new knowledge and with those new skills with your body, you gained new hobbies and new interests. This is all change. And from here on forward, you will continue to change. Your physical appearance will continue to change. Your physical abilities will continue to change. Your patterns of thinking will change. You'll gain new knowledge, new abilities, new things that you enjoy. And we're not just talking about positive change, what we would view as positive change. There's also negative change. As time passes, there's certain information that you used to know really, really well, like when you were in school, and you could do the Pythagorean theorem really well. Now I've kind of forgotten how to do all that. Time has passed. I've lost that knowledge. There are certain skills that you may have had at one time that you used to do all the time, and you knew those skills really well, and time passed, and you haven't used them in a while, and now those skill sets are gone. Time devours. You are always changing. And you could say this another way. You're not always always changing. You're always becoming. You could say you're never fully you. You never exist to the fullest extent possible because you are always having to change. You're always growing, improving, getting stronger or weaker. You're learning. You're always becoming something new. You're becoming older. You're becoming smarter, wiser, funnier, stronger. And the list goes on. Change is a reality for the creature. And this has been called what is known as passive potency. It just refers to an ability to change. It's a really fancy way to say you change. Potency refers to untapped or unactivated potential. You and I change when we're motivated to change by someone or something else. And generally that's because it has been brought to our attention that we have some kind of deficiency. If I say I have the potential to learn the Chinese language, question, do I know the Chinese language? No, <laughs> we got a joker. If I say I have the potential to learn it, that means I don't currently know the Chinese language the potential proves I have a deficiency. If I say I have the potential to memorize the book of Psalms, have I memorized the book of Psalms yet? No. 
but I have the potential. And that potential says I have the ability to change. I have not fully developed every bit of who I am. I have not fully used all of my mental resources. I have not fully used all of my physical resources. I've only used a part of them, and therefore I have some kind of deficiency. Matthew Barrett described it this way, potential by definition assumes someone has yet to reach a state of fulfillment. Potential implies deficiency in some way. You have skills that you can improve. You have knowledge that you can gain. You have things that you can learn, understanding that you can gain. And if you look in the mirror, whether the physical or the metaphorical mirror, you will see things about yourself that you say, well, I could improve that. I could make that better. That's not perfect yet. That's potential. That's you recognizing a deficiency. You have untapped inactive potential. Think of passive potency like a child learning to ride a bicycle. Now, most kids, they don't come out of the womb, and as soon as they can talk, they just automatically on their own say, I want to ride a bicycle. Typically, children learn or desire to ride a bicycle for one of two reasons. One, Parents introduced them to the idea of a bicycle. Did you know if you got on this bicycle and started riding it, you could have a lot of fun doing it? And so the child says, well, that sounds great. Other children, it's not their parents introducing it, it's other children introducing the idea. When I was little, I had a tricycle. I loved my tricycle. It was a little red one. And we would be out in the backyard, and I'd ride it in circles on the back porch. And I was perfectly content with my tricycle. I had no deficiency at all. Perfectly satisfied with my tricycle. Until my brother showed up and starts riding his bicycle around and starts doing things on his bicycle that I couldn't do on my tricycle. My brother showed me my deficiency. My brother showed me I had untapped potential. Now when some kids start riding their bicycle, they start with training wheels. You put two little training wheels on it, and that helps the child get used to the idea of being on a bicycle, and it helps them overcome their fear of falling over. And as they get more comfortable, you take one of the training wheels off, and the child can still keep riding. You just tell them, look, if you feel like you're going to fall, just lean to the side with the, tr the training wheel, you're good to go. And eventually, their skills improve to the point that they can take off the other training wheel, and they're off and running they still haven't fully activated all of their potential, have they? They've just learned the basics of how to balance a bicycle. They're not going to be riding like Kermit anytime soon. <laughs> Is that a first? <laughs> but you've got to admit, that's some skill. It takes time to get to the point where you can ride down the street, stand on the seat with one leg, and not hold onto the bars. That's full potential being activated. My point here is there's always room for you to grow. You always have untapped potential because you have never fully utilized everything that God has given you. 
you have never fully utilized all of your brain power, all of your intellect, all of your physical abilities that God has given you. And this isn't even really an argument. You go to school, you read books, you come to classes, and you do all these things because you recognize there is a deficiency in you. And while you have some knowledge and you have some skills, those skills are not perfect. They are not complete. And so we, we change. We grow. We never fully exist to our fullest potential. And we never fully remove or completely remove all of our deficiency. We're always becoming. We're always becoming something that we're not. You're not going to be the same person that you are today in 15, 20 years from now. You're going to be a completely different person, just as you were a completely different person 15 to 20 years ago. But this is not true of God. God is not becoming. God is being. God is being. Now, in our first class, I mentioned being in essence. And I said for that class, we're just going to assume that these two are synonymous. There is a technical distinction, but it's not relevant yet. It just became relevant. Essence refers to what God is. When we talk about the essence of God, we're talking about his nature. And when we're talking about the nature, we're talking about his attributes. What is he? Just like in, in, in a human perspective, we talk about humans versus dogs. The essence of a human and the essence of a dog is their nature. When we talk about being, we're not talking about his attributes or his nature. When we want to know what is the nature of something, we ask, what is it? Being does not ask a question. It, it is a statement. It's not, what is God? The statement is, that God is. Being describes God's existence. Our existence is described as becoming, constantly changing. God's existence is not becoming. It is being. He is what he is. He is not becoming. He has no passive potency. He has no potential to grow, no potential to learn. He's not becoming anything. He exists exactly as he did in eternity past. And he exists today exactly as he will in eternity future. There is no change in God. He has no potential. He will always be what he is. Nothing in him is deficient. All of his attributes, all of his nature is fully realized, fully activated, and fully active at all times, and it is that way perfectly. That is to say, God is perfect. He does not have passive potency. He does not have unactivated potential. He's never going to get to a point one day where he stops and goes, you know what? I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. God is perfect. 
because he has no ability to improve. He has no potential to learn or gain something new. It's not that God has perfected his potential. The little kid riding the bicycle one day can ride like Kermit. That's perfecting your potential. God did not perfect his potential. His potential was always perfect. His abilities were always complete, always fully active. He has never had any deficiency in him whatsoever. All of his attributes exist fully, completely, with no deficiency. Thomas Aquinas described this as God being pure act or pure actuality, which is a really fancy way to say that God is not acted on, but is the one who acts on others. No one has ever shown God a deficiency in him or motivated him to do something. Because God is perfect, all of his attributes, all of his perfections are fully active at all times. That means circumstances, people, events do not prompt him to change. When I was a little boy, and I told you about the, the tricycle, I didn't I wasn't motivated to learn to ride the bicycle because of myself. Someone else motivated me to do that. It was my brother. My brother motivated me to do that by showing me I had a deficiency. I couldn't ride a bicycle yet. And because he showed me I had a deficiency, I changed. Other people can show you a deficiency and cause you or motivate you to change. Circumstances can cause you to change. Think about 2020. Think about all the events that showed up in 2020 that you were not aware that they were coming. In this church, we had to make changes on how we do things because there was some time we weren't meeting together. And we didn't see those changes coming. We had a deficiency. We didn't have full knowledge. And so we had to change. Pure act, pure actuality says that God never has to change because all of his attributes are perfect and they are all active all the time. To say that God has no deficiency is to say that God is never caused to change. Nothing ever causes him to change what he's doing. He never recognizes any deficiency in himself because he never has a deficiency. Is everyone with me? Is anyone confused or lost? Okay. If God were to change, and God is perfect, think about the logic of this one. His perfection would have to either increase or decrease. To say that God could change in his essence, to change his nature or his attributes, is to, as Herman Baving said, to belittle every one of his attributes. Is to diminish all of them. Because if they are perfect, what do you change them to? If God is perfect, what does he change to? Creatures change because we are imperfect. Our qualities, our attributes are limited and finite. 
Our knowledge is limited and imperfect. Our power is limited and imperfect. And because of those two facts, I have to change. And when I change, when you change, we're just simply acknowledging reality. We're imperfect beings. We have deficiencies. But God is perfect. So what if God changed? We're going to take a little thought experiment. And we're going to play a little game here. If, if God could change, what would it look like? Let's say God changed his plans. Let's, we'll, we'll take something that's, you know, minor. Salvation. Something small. God planned in eternity past to save you. To save me. And God had to change his plan because of some unforeseen circumstances. You know, like creatures sinning. Sinners being sinners. And it's really not his fault because he didn't know how the plan would unfold. So he had to change. These circumstances happen outside of his control, outside of his power. They're outside of his knowledge. And so God had to update the plan. He had, to ten he had originally planned to save you. But then you went and did what you did. And now God realized, because of the circumstances, I simply can't save you anymore. He didn't know how you would respond. And now that he's learned how, you've going, how you're going to respond, now he has to update his plan. Anybody like this God yet? It's a pretty terrifying thought, isn't it? If, yes. Yeah, no such thing as a rogue molecule, yeah. If God had to change his plan... Because he didn't know something, that means God's knowledge is not perfect. He doesn't have complete and full knowledge. He learned something along the way. Okay, well that's not a very flattering picture of God. What if God changed for another reason? What if God changed because there was an unforeseen obstacle? Or maybe he saw the obstacle, but thought he could figure out a way to get past it. So again, we're, we're still going back to knowledge in a way. But he gets to this obstacle, and we'll take the Arminian view and say, your free will. God intends to save you, but he's met this insurmountable obstacle, which is the free will of the sinner, which people say God can't override. And he gets to the obstacle, and he realizes, well, I just don't have the power to overcome the obstacle. It's too big for me. And whatever that obstacle is, like, you know, man's free will, the creature's will, God says, I cannot fulfill the plan I had originally intended because my power is too limited. I don't have the power to do this. Anybody like this God either? To say that God doesn't have the power to overcome the obstacle is to say that God's power is imperfect. These are problems creatures have. I make plans, and I can't fulfill the plan because I didn't have the foresight to see problems ahead of me. 
or I don't complete the plan because I get along that path and I get to an obstacle that there's nothing I can do about. This is what describes the creature. This doesn't describe God. If God could change, he's not God. Let's do another one. God changed in his attributes. And we'll just do this on a timeline and say, what if God was perfect before the change? Because if people want to sidestep immutability, they'll say, well, no, 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 God didn't change because of deficiency. He was always perfect, but he still changed. Okay, what's the problem? It's perfect. What, why would you need to change? The reality is the change could not be an improvement to God. It could not be an improvement in his nature. If one of his attributes changed and his attributes were perfect beforehand, what were they after the change? This could only be a diminishing of his nature. This could only be lessening each attribute. Okay, so you don't like God changed, God was perfect before the change. Well, let's say God was perfect after he changed. What's the problem there? Huh? He wasn't perfect before. Then God is not God from all of eternity. He couldn't be God from all of eternity because he is a created being and all of his attributes are subject to change. And we've already learned all of his attributes are necessary for him to be God. If God could change in his attributes, if he could change in his nature, he is not an eternal God. He is a created being. And if his, na if his nature and his attributes have changed in the past, that means they can change in the future. Which means all of the attributes that you depend upon, you really can't depend upon them. You look at God and say, God is a good God. Yes, but if God could change in his nature and his attributes, then his goodness is not permanent. It can change tomorrow. Yes? If, if God could change, like you say, it, it means that he's not God. It means that he's corruptible. Yeah. It means that he would not be a holy, righteous, and just God. Yeah. Uh, Forrest was saying, if God could change, it means he's corruptible. And that's true. You take holiness. If God could change in his perfect holiness, what is he now? He's not holy. His perfection would not be eternal. And therefore, it could soon be diminished. Any change in God would represent some form of deficiency in him. And the moment you have a change in God, you no longer have the eternal, perfect God of Scripture. Okay, any questions so far? Is there anyone lost or confused? All right. Let's look at some scriptural evidence. Turn over to Psalm 102.
chapter's heading here, prayer of an afflicted man for mercy on himself and on Zion. Psalmist is going through some tough times. He's turning to God. He's asking for mercy for himself and for his nation. Jump down to verse 3. For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like like a hearth. Consumed in smoke. That is to say, his, his days vanished like smoke. Here one day, gone the next. Fleeting, temporal, passing, changing. Jump down to verse 11. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither like grass. His life passes him like a shadow. It's as fleeting and as changing as shadows on the ground. And as soon as he reaches the height of his days, like a blade of grass, he begins to diminish and go away. Fleeting, temporal, changing, never the same. This is how scripture describes creation. Verse 12. But you, O Lord, abide forever and your name to all generations. The psalmist recognizes that God is not like man. Man is fleeting, man is temporal, man is changing. He turns to God and says, you abide forever. You are eternal. You do not fade away. You aren't going anywhere. You're not going to vanish like smoke. And the psalmist's knowledge of God's eternality gives him confidence that God will have mercy on Israel. Look at verse 13. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. He's confident. God is going to be gracious to Israel. God is going to be merciful to Israel. This time of affliction is going to pass. God is going to reveal his glory to all the nations. Verse 15. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord, and the kings of the earth your glory. Question. How is is the psalmist so confident? How can he say that the eternal God will do these things? What is the source of his confidence? God's promises, God's word. Look at verse 25. Of old, you have founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will endure. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. God created the heavens and the earth, and the psalmist says, the heavens and the earth will pass away. You made them, you made them to pass away. And then he illustrates them passing away. He says, like a garment like a piece of clothing. We have Goodwill and Salvation Army. They have a whole bunch of old used clothes. And then there's the other clothes that are so worn out, you just throw them away. That's how he describes creation. All of them will be changed, and they will all be changed because God will ensure that they change. They all have a deficiency. It's all temporal. It's all fleeting. Verse 27. 
but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. That opening line, but you are the same. You, you can literally translate that, but you are he. You are the guy who made the creation. You have not changed since you created it. All of the world, all of the universe has changed, but you have remained exactly as you are. You are the same God who created the heavens and the earth. You are the same God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no change in you. And therefore, your nature has not changed, your character has not changed, your promises have not changed, and they are just as good today as they were when you made them. You are always the same. And because God remains the same, his relationships with his people, the relationships that he has formed, those stay the same. Those do not change. The nation of Israel had run off into all sorts of idolatry. But God's promises to the nation of Israel had already accounted for those sins. He didn't have to change. He wasn't surprised by what, what they did. Verse 28. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. His relationship with them hasn't changed. His promises are still true. You're a believer today. You have a relationship with an eternal and immutable God. And that relationship is not based upon you. It's not based upon me. God knows all things perfectly. His plan and his purposes do not change. And there is not some obstacle in the way that God is not going to be able to overcome. Because God is immutable, because he has perfect knowledge of you in your life, there's not some sin that's going to knock you out of relationship with him in the future. There's not some sin that's going to make it so impossible for God to fulfill the promises that he has already made to you. That would suggest that God was in some way changeable. That he was in some way deficient. In Malachi 3, God says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Can you be any more clear? I do not change. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I do not change. One, and he calls them sons of Jacob. You guys have always been changing. One day they were faithful, the next day they were blaspheming God by worshiping idols. And it is only because God remained the same, that God did not change, that he was immutable, that he was unchangeable, that his promises and his character did not change. That is the only reason, he says, they were not consumed. His promises are based in his unchanging nature. God is not moved or changed by man. He's not moved or changed by events in the world. He doesn't change because of circumstances. He is already perfect. He's already unchanging. And therefore, his promises to Israel remain. Verse 29. 
His promises to you and to me remain just as they were when he made them. He doesn't need someone to to explain to him what's going to happen. He doesn't need someone to tell him or give him some new information so he can update his plan. Prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? God doesn't have a deficiency in his knowledge. I have a deficiency in my knowledge, so I have to go read books and listen to classes and lectures and sermons. God doesn't have that problem. His knowledge is perfect. He's never gone and learned anything. And he is not dependent upon anyone for his knowledge and his understanding. Isaiah 40 again, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. I'll point out first here, notice he says he does not become weary or tired. If you had a long week this week, by Friday you may have found that you were tired. Monday, you felt like you had plenty of strength, and by Friday, you're exhausted, and you're ready to just sleep for the next week. Doesn't happen with God. He doesn't become tired. He doesn't change in that way. And notice at the end, he says, his understanding is inscrutable. Forrest and I were talking about the Bible software, Logos. I have this software on my computer, and I've got like 3,000 books on there. And what's cool about this is you can just go into the search function and just type in a word or a verse, and you can tell it to search all those books. And in seconds, that thing will catalog and show you every single one of those resources that mentions that one word or that one verse. It's searchable. The term he uses here, his understanding is inscrutable, refers to searching. You might say his knowledge is unsearchable. If you were to take the knowledge of God and try to put it on a hard drive, you'd need a much, much bigger hard drive. There's not enough terabytes to store it. It's unsearchable. You can't search it out and find its depths. It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our capacity to conceive. It is perfect knowledge. He has gained no knowledge from anyone or anything. He's never learned a thing in his life. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. If God's knowledge is perfect, that means he cannot learn. He has no deficiency. And he has no need to change in any way. Romans eleven thirty three. Go over to the book of James real quick. We're going to go to the New Testament. James is writing to some believers that are going through some trials. They have some problems. They're suffering. 
And James is going to write to them, and he's going to give them some tests to understand if they're truly believers. But he also wants to give them some encouragements. And he starts the, the book off, James 1, starting in verse 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. All right, James says, look, you're going through some hard times, you're dealing with some suffering, you're going through trials, but you should count it all joy. You should be happy, you should be joyful in the midst of this, you should worship God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in everything. And he wants them to be steadfast in their devotion to Christ. Endure those hardships because God intends those hardships to sanctify you, to make you better, to grow you in the image of Christ. That's his goal. In fact, in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Trials are God's way of bringing about good, of bringing about change in you conforming us to the image of Christ. And as you endure these trials, James wants you to count it all joy because they are for your eternal good. But here's the problem. How can you trust this promise? If, God is, if God's going to make this promise, he would make this promise because he's a good God. A good God takes bad things and uses it for your good. But if God changes, if his character changes, if his nature changes, he may not be a good God tomorrow. If he's not holy tomorrow, then what guarantee do you have that he's actually using these for your eternal good? How do you know it's not like the little kid with a magnifying glass burning ants? It's based upon his very nature. Verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is the Father of lights. He made the sun, the stars, the moon. And those lights are changing. They all have shadows. Those shadows come and go. Depending on how many clouds are out, you may not even have a shadow. They're varying, at least from the human perspective. God is the Father of lights, and every good thing comes from Him. And in Him, there is no shadow, there is no variation, there is no change. He is immovable, He's unchangeable. He's not like a shifting shadow that is here today, gone tomorrow. Now, when you talk about this, there's some objections that people make. And they use some verses to say, well, you know, that's all well and good, but the Bible seems to indicate that God does change. You know, they go back to like Genesis 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. See? There it is. God regrets. He made a decision, and now look, he regrets that he did it. Obviously, God must change. 
And in fact, 1 Samuel 15, I regret that I made Saul king. Flat out says it. He made a decision, and now he realized it was a bad thing to do. Wrong decision. We need to understand that these are not... These are just like the attributes of God. The attributes of God is God condescending down to our level and making himself haveable, making himself to where we can understand him. And when God uses terminology like, I regret that I have made Saul king, we can't put that in opposition to other passages that say he does not change. We have to understand passages like this in light of the rest of the revelation of God, that he does not change. This is him making himself haveable, condescending and expressing his displeasure. This is just the strongest way for him to say, I really don't like the sin that this guy has done. And in fact, in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, when people say that God changed his mind, that God regretted it, the book actually contradicts that statement. 1 Samuel 15, uh, 28 and 29, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. Just a few verses later, it says God didn't change his mind. That was his plan from the start. And then he says he is not a man that he should change his mind. It's normal for humans to change their mind. It's a fact for creation that you and I change our mind because we have imperfect knowledge. But God is not like you and I. Thank goodness. He's not like us. He doesn't need to change his mind. His will is perfect. It has no deficiencies. It cannot be improved upon. Therefore, it will never change. I agree with you that it's it's part of his holiness that's coming out here. Uh, when he expresses his regret and his displeasure with this, he's describing that intense hatred of sin. Um, and the term regret in human ways is just the strongest way that you can say that. What about the story of Jonah? This is another one. Jonah 3 when God saw, that their de- saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. 
See, there you go. God planned to wipe out the city of Nineveh. And that's what it says, Jonah 3, verse 4. God was going to overcome the city. He was going to destroy it. And now here, look, God changed his mind. He decided he wasn't going to destroy the city. Proof that the open theists have it right. Open theism, by the way, says that God doesn't know the future and that he's just kind of playing it as it goes. And he's learning as he goes. Well, I guess if you just read this one chapter, and if you ignore the rest of the Bible, and if you ignore the rest of the book of Jonah, you can come to the conclusion that God changed his mind and changed his plans. But let's ask the question, did Jonah think that God changed his mind? When Jonah saw that God relented, did Jonah say, oh, man, I'm so glad, God, you decided to change your mind and go with, you know, go with something different? Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. God relents from the calamity. He saves the city of Nineveh. He doesn't kill everybody. And Jonah sits down, and he's just mad. He's enraged. What did he expect? He's angry because God changed the plan? No. Because God changed his mind? No, he's not angry about that either. Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to preach to them, and then they actually turn and be saved. And he says, was this not what I said while I was in my country? I knew this is what you were going to do. And I went to Tarshish just so I could forestall this, just so I could keep you from doing this. That's why I went to Tarshish. Because I knew what your plan was from the start. I don't want you to save these people. Well, God changed his plans, didn't he? Changed Jonah's plans. And Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches as he's told to. And what happens? God does exactly what Jonah expected him to do. Jonah didn't see this as a change in God's mind. Jonah saw this as what God intended to do from the start. God used all the circumstances and even Jonah's <clears throat> free will to accomplish what God wanted. This idea of immutability is illustrated throughout Scripture. And you've already heard of the illustration. It's in a well-known hymn by uh, Augustus Toplady. Anybody think of what hymn I'm referring to? 
Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It, it actually comes from Scripture. 2 Samuel 22, David, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. David is praising God, his rock, for delivering him from his enemies, delivering him from the hand of Saul. And when David calls God the rock, he's not describing some little pebble or some stone that's just kind of laying in the road. The same term is used in Exodus 33 when Moses was on Mount Sinai. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. What kind of rock is he talking about? He's talking about a massive, massive rock. A rock that doesn't move. That doesn't change with every passing fad. In the ancient world, this would have been viewed as unchanging. Permanent. Never to be moved or removed. And when you think about the rock as this big, massive mountain that you and I could never go and, you know, move out of the way. Then you read out of the Psalms. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's another hymn we like to sing. Rock here is a reference to a large mountain, a, a large cliff, immovable, solid, unchanging. Psalm 62, 2, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. What's interesting here is he says he, is, he only is my rock and my salvation. David views his salvation in the context of God's immutability. God never changes. He is solid, immovable. He is going to be exactly as he was when he made the promises to me. He will be the same for all of eternity. And that is the foundation of David's salvation. That is what David rests on. Steve Lawson said of this passage, David sees God as unchanging, like a solid rock. He is not like a leaf or a blade of grass that changes its colors. He is not like an animal that sheds its fur. God is like an immovable boulder, never changing and always the same. That's the God that you rest on for salvation. A God who changes constantly would be no sure foundation. He wouldn't give you any confidence that you could actually be saved and make it to the end. By the way, this quote comes out of a little book that I believe is now available to you. It's called uh, Show Me Your Glory, and it's Steve Lawson's newest little book on the attributes of God. It's a fantastic little book. So, questions, comments, concerns? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Silent. All right, let's pray. Father, we are 
uh, your creation. We recognize that we do have deficiencies, that we have room that we can grow, that we can learn. Uh, we have areas that we need to fix in our own lives. We have sin. We have things that we can learn. We need to grow in our Christ-likeness and our walk. But Lord, we do not trust in ourselves. We do not trust in our abilities. We trust in you. We, we trust in the promises that you have made, that you do not change in your nature. You do not change in your character. Your plan is perfect. Your will is perfect. And it is just as good today as it was when you made it and when you first decreed your plan of salvation. And so we just ask that you would help us to trust in you and not in ourselves, to trust in you and not in our works, but in the work of Christ. And we ask that our time this morning of worship would be pleasing to you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.